left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I think there's only so many markets a sponsor can be an expert at. For me, you have to have an edge as a sponsor to be worth investing. Like, what is your edge? And I think, you know, in these markets, we have an edge in that we have scale. We have a lot of experience there. And we have teams in place that when we buy a deal are ready to go. Construction teams, management teams, etc. If you have seven, 10 different markets as a sponsor, like it's really, really challenging to do that. Conversely, as a passive investor, I don't want to invest in two different markets. I want to invest in 10, 15 markets. And if you have one sponsor that's covering all of them, that would be suspect to me because it would just be challenging for them to really understand those markets. So I think diversification in sponsors, mainly for diversification of locations, is key. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Today, I'm happy to have Josh Satin, the Director of Acquisitions for Gelt Inc. He's an experienced multifamily and mobile home park investor involved in the acquisition of over 3,300 units valued at $500 million. He helped start Happy Homes Communities, acquiring eight mobile home parks, totaling over 1,000 spaces. And he's a former Major League Baseball player for the New York Mets and Cincinnati Reds. Josh, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's great. So can you start out a little bit and just tell me your journey, how you got into 
passive investing and then from there, how you got into uh, working for Geld? Yeah. So flashback to 2010, I was playing baseball. I was a minor leaguer with the New York Mets making, uh, what did I make that year? 15 grand. And obviously just trying to scrape by and, and survive. And then 2011, um, I made it to the major leagues and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I, I had some money and, uh, I got some very, very good advice very early on from somebody I really trust. Basically, he said, he asked me what I was going to do with my money now. And I said, you know, I'll probably give it to a guy. You know, that's what most athletes do. And he said, just do me a favor. I've been investing in multifamily for the last 20 years and it's how I've made most of my money. He was a passive investor too. So, uh, he said, do this deal with me. If it goes poorly, I'll give you your money back. And so I said, that's probably a no brainer. So at the time, let's see, that was 2011. I was 25 years old. So I was young. I didn't really know what I was doing investing wise, et cetera, but I trusted him and timing was amazing and the deal went great. Uh, and we ended up doing, I ended up doing 15 deals with one, one group from 2011 to 2014. I was playing for the Mets that, that whole time, and it was great. I mean, obviously, I, I hit the timing perfectly. Uh, these markets that we were invested in on the West Coast were, you know, recovering and recovering fast, and rents were growing really fast. So we, we hit it right, and it kind of got me hooked in the business. Uh, so flash forward 2015, my baseball career fell apart, unfortunately, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I met with probably 20 different people in 20 different industries. All 19 out of 20 bored me to death. And this one, the group that I had been investing with, I met with them. I said to them, look, I know what you do on a high level, but what's the day-to-day? What's the skill set you need? And, and the second he started talking, I was, I was hooked. I said, this is what I want to do. Uh, and so that's how it started. They actually introduced me to Gelt at the time. This is 2015. At the time, we owned about 2,500 units, maybe a little bit more, but I think something around there. And flash forward to now, we have bought about 9,000. So it's it's been a very steady growth the last five years or so. And But it all started as a passive investor. So when, when you asked me to be on the podcast, I, I feel like I have a good perspective of what both from passive and, and active investors, uh, because I did both and I started as a passive investor and, and have done almost the same amount of investments as a passive investor as an active. Are you still doing passive investing? I do. So the way that I view passive investing or investing in general in multifamily is, you know, when you invest in a deal, when I invest in a deal, I want to invest and never take the money. So these guys that I invested with originally, um, their business model is buy, renovate, hold for five, seven, 10 years, sell 1031 exchange and do it all over again. And so We've now sold out of the 15 deals I did. I don't know. We've sold probably five or so. Um, and we've 1031 exchanged every one. Uh, I've also invested in a couple mobile home parks that aren't Gelt related. I've invested in... What else have I invested in? So yeah, to answer your question, yes. I'm constantly you know, investing in both my own company, but also in, in others. Okay. So back up to when you first got into passive investing when you were, when you were a ball player and you found... It sounds like you had a mentor who kind of helped you through this. So how, how did you find someone to trust? And I know you just kind of happened into the multifamily space, but how did you find that person? He had me my uncle. Oh. <laughs> and so he, uh, his background is, is very simple. He's a property casualty insurance salesman. Um, he had his own business. He sold it. He's the most successful guy in our family. And, you know, he said to me, I'll never forget it. Uh, he said to me, 
and it's, I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but he sold his business at that time for a good amount of money. And, and he said, I just want to let you know, I've made way more money investing in real estate than I did on the business sale. And the business sale was, was public. So we, we knew how much it was. So at that point I was like, Oh damn. Okay. That, that makes sense. So he, he had been investing it with a lot of his clients. So he, he, he specialized in property casualty, mostly multifamily. Uh, and so he would invest alongside his clients if he thought the deal was good. And, and there was a couple of sponsors in particular that, you know, from two, from 1985 until now he, he had invested with. So uh, he introduced me to them. Um, and it really was a trust factor. But, you know, the more that I started investing, the more I understood the business plan, the business model, but how crucial market was. Uh, I remember like the third or fourth deal we did was um, he said, you got to do this deal. And mind you, I was so focused on on my profession, which was baseball, that I, I didn't really know much about investing or finance or anything like now. He said, they're, they're buying this deal in Reno. There's a company called Tesla that's about to move thousands of employees there. And I was like, what the hell? I didn't know what even Tesla was. Um, this is like 2012 or something. And sure enough, he said, put as much money as you can. And I didn't do that because I'm more conservative than that. But we were able to, the, the deal that got me hooked, this is the deal that got me hooked because we were able to refi out after nine months, all of our money. Because rents grew so fast as soon as uh, Tesla came in. Oh, wow. You know, I learned very fast. It's location. That's really when I was a passive investor. I didn't know much about, you know, how to model deals or whatever. But I knew that location was essential. And a story of to why you're investing in a certain place was essential. So when you did your first 15 deals, were you trying to get into different markets for diversification purposes? Or were you just kind of investing in in what you thought was the next great market based on what your uncle said or, or based on some other knowledge you had? It was more so uh, diversification. I definitely wasn't like handpicking markets that I thought were great because I didn't really know that that much. But I knew you know, I was very high level. So that story about Reno was great. It was, you know, 2012, 13. It's very easy to tell the Seattle story about Amazon and how much it's growing and Microsoft and Boeing. That's a very easy story to understand. Uh, so we we invested a lot there. Phoenix also was kind of harder for me to understand because I know it got destroyed last cycle. But that growth has, you know, was easy for me to understand just how many people were moving there. Because as, as we talked about offline, I live in LA. And, you know, the big thing about LA is uh, everyone's leaving and you know, because taxes are so high and cost of living is so high. And so the story of Phoenix is an easy story to, to understand. It's an hour away uh, flight. And so it's logical for people to move there. So that was as a passive investor, you know, how I got comfortable with, with different markets. But really, you know, it was very high level, not, not like now. And so now with Gelt, I noticed that you guys are in a lot of West Coast markets. You're not in or at least doesn't seem like you're in the the typical mar- markets that you see see a lot of syndicators in, which is something I like because then someone investing with you can get diversity of of markets. But can you talk a little bit about what different markets you're in and and which ones are your favorites and why? Yeah, so we have really our three core markets, which is Denver, Salt Lake, and Portland. You know, we always wanted to stick to the West Coast, uh, really because we want to be able to fly to our properties in two hours or less. And Denver's a little farther than so is Salt Lake. But uh, if if we need to be there, we don't, you know, it's tough if you're investing in Florida, which is a great market, you know, Jacksonville or, you know, all, all these places in Florida, but it's a seven hour flight. Uh, and it really takes up a full day of, of traveling there and back. If you're needed on site, it, ju- it just makes it hard. So we always want to stick to the West Coast. Why we chose those three markets or is growth, really. Very simply, we, 
you know, we, we got into Denver pretty early uh, and then we scaled Denver's our biggest market by far. And it's, it's really the, it's multiple things, but it's it's the growth in jobs and populations, which you, which you hear always, obviously. But it's truthfully the millennial growth. We want to be where young people are. You know, the millennials are the renter generation, uh, and we want to be where young people are. Denver had four times the national average of millennial immigration in the last five years. It's very simple why they have a great balance between work and play in Denver. You big downtown with thousands and thousands of jobs, technology jobs, medical jobs, etc. But you're also 30 to an hour away from ski resorts, hiking, anything that you would want from a young person's perspective, you know, to get outside. So Denver really has a great balance of that. So we got into Denver really, really early. It's been, it's been a great market for us. Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake is tough because there's not that much that there's not that much supply that comes online to buy. Um, so it's a tough market to break into, but the growth there has been astronomical and Portland. Similarly, there, there's been, a nice spillover from Seattle and, and such, and, and a lot of satellite offices from companies in Seattle that, that have been coming there. They've had an excess of supply the last few years, but I'm very bullish on Portland the next five years because there's not as much new properties being built, but and the demand has been very, very strong. So those are our core three markets. We bought in other markets too, but those have been our core three. When you, when you look at Oregon, now I'm not sure if it passed, but they were looking at rent control and things like that. Does that factor into your decision? And how do you deal with that? They did pass a law of rent control. And, and this is the challenge of the West Coast. I mean, the West Coast is a great pay- place to invest because there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of really, really successful large companies which breed in, which bring in you know, big time talent that are making a lot of money and can pay a lot of money in rent. But it's a liberal, they're, you know, liberal locations, which, which can make it challenging for landlords. Uh, Oregon passed a rent control law that was 9% plus CPI, which is essentially inflation. So you know, you're talking 11%. You can't raise someone's rent that already, and it's only for tenants that live there. So if your business plan is where you have to raise someone's rent 11%, it's probably not the place for you, but that that's not really our business plans per se all the time. Obviously we're renovating units, but that's, and raising rents sometimes more than that, but but that's typically on with new tenants coming in and, and there's no cap on that. That's interesting because a lot of people, it seems like stay away from these certain markets because they hear rent control or they hear different policies. But if you dig into it and you find out it's 9% plus CPI, that, that's not that's not so onerous, right? Especially if you're doing rehabs and getting new tenants in, like you said. Totally. I, I think the fear is that that's only the beginning. That's, that's where like people could say like, why am I investing here? They have rent control. What if, you know, if they're able to pass that, what if next is 5%? Like, you know, it, it, you never know how far it could go. But as is, it, it's not a problem at all. Yeah. And, and I like diversification of markets, like you talked about. And so finding someone who's doing something on the West Coast where almost nobody else is, is, is intriguing. Can you talk about diversification of, by sponsor? Do you believe that for passive investors, are you looking to be in a bunch of different sponsors or do you go all in with one? I definitely wouldn't go all in with one. You know, for me, I think there's only so many markets a sponsor can, can be an expert at. And, you know, for me, you have to have an edge as a sponsor to be worth investing in? Like, what is your edge? And, and I think, you know, in these markets, we have an edge in that we have scale. We have a lot of experience there. Uh, and we have teams in place that when we buy a deal are ready to go. Uh, construction teams, ma- management teams, etc. If you have seven, 10 different markets as a sponsor, like it's really, really challenging to do that. And so conversely, as a passive investor, I don't want to invest in two different markets. I want to invest in 10, 15 markets. I want exposure to 
the Carolinas. I want exposure to Denver. I want exposure to Dallas. I want exposure, you know, all sorts of these, these growing markets. And if you have one sponsor that's covering all of them, I, I would be a little, that would be suspect to me because it would just be challenging for them to really understand those markets. So I think diversification in sponsors, mainly for diversification of locations is, is key. And how do you evaluate the, the sponsor? If you're going to invest in a new sponsor, what what questions do you ask? What's the process you, you take to make sure that they're going to you know be good stewards of your money? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, and when I was a passive investor, I never did this. But now that I'm in the business and, and, and have seen so many deals myself and so many structures, you know, first, it's experience is obviously important, um, understanding their experience in real estate and in the market. Business plan is very important. But I have a weird quirk where very, very important to me is how people underwrite expenses. Um, because I think, and early in my career, I was guilty of this too. Um, but there's a misnomer in our business that uh, you can get away with, you know, 200 door repair and maintenance, 200 door turnover, 250 in reserves, and that's going to last you a while. It's just not the case, you know, and, and people were able to get away with it, you know, when the market was booming and you can get in and out of a deal in two years. But if you have to sell it, if you have to wait and, and hold a deal five, seven, 10 years, it's just not doable. And so if you're seeing cash on cash numbers or, or return numbers based on very, very skinny repair and maintenance numbers and reserve numbers, really reserves are, are what for me is, is like my big issue. I, I've seen decks where I just like, I'll, I'll, that's the first thing I look at and I'm like, all right, the, the deal is not going to work unless you get really lucky. Um, and so those are big numbers for me because, you know, you can budget for whatever you want for all these different things, but things are going to come up and you have to be, you know, budgeted for them for, for just things that, that you don't know what's going on. And so, you know, I found that unless you see, you know, on buildings built 90s and older, truthfully, you're at between repair and maintenance, turnover, contracted services and replacement, you should be around 1500 a door. And so if I see someone's at 900 a door, which I see all the time, the deal's not going to work. You're just hoping for luck and and and, and such because you can't hold that deal long term with those numbers. So that's my biggest pain point. I'm very weird about that because I just, we own a lot of deals. I track them. And, and in the beginning, it's kind of consensus to underwrite that way. And I was like, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not real. And so, uh, and I think it started because most lenders, you know, want you to write 250 a, a door in, in replacement reserves. And it's just not a realistic number. So that's my biggest, that's the first thing I look at every time. Um, but I look at structure for the most part. You know, are you aligned with your investors? I want the sponsors to make money if the deal does well, but I don't want them to make money if the deal doesn't. So if you're super fee heavy, I, I prefer like larger promoted interest structures than, than fee structures because uh, investors should be, I think investors should be hopeful. If you hold a deal five years, you should double your money, including cash flow. That should be the goal. And and so if the deal performs significantly better than that, I think the sponsor should get rewarded significantly. Whereas if the deal performs worse than that, I don't think the sponsor should get rewarded very much. And so th those are my two pain points. Okay. Uh, so talking about the um, the reserves, you're saying fifteen hundred per door. What is all? What all does that include? That's not just the replacement reserves. That's all in with maintenance. And you typically see like repair and maintenance turnover contract underwritten at like seven to nine hundred a door. So I think reserves realistically should be like six to 800 a door. And some, you know, I've seen people underwriting repair and maintenance turnover contract combined at 500 a door and just, you know, saying, yeah, we could cut this. You, you can't really cut, you can put it below the line, uh, you know, into the reserves, but then you're not accounting for that either. You know, I just see that, you know, if you're going to hold, if you have to hold a deal five, seven, 10 years, um, and the reason 
people haven't had to do that is because rents have grown so fast in you know a market like Dallas, for example. If you bought a deal in 2015 and you sold it in 2017, you made a huge profit. It's not always going to be the case. Uh, right. You might have to wait until 2020 or just longer. And these these deals need money pumped into them, um, or they'll fall apart. And so not accounting for them is just unrealistic. It's unrealistic, and and the returns won't be what the sponsor says if they don't account for that. That's great information. You know, our our group we kind of you know we have a tool that we have some metrics and then this tool you, you kind of enter in the the data for the for the new whatever the the deal is and it just basically puts up little red flags if if a number exceeds whatever our metrics are and so to me when i'm looking at a deal i don't want to re-underwrite it from scratch right that's your job you're the sponsor i just want to figure out okay i like the market i like the sponsor now i'm going to look at the deal are there any red flags so aside from the reserves and the conversation we just had what are a couple of other main metrics or main things you look at when evaluating a deal that might raise some of those red flags? How much rent growth is projected? You know, everyone, I, I underwrite deals with rent growth. I mean, right now it's a little less, but typically you underwrite deals with like rent growth based on inflation. So, you know, two to 3% inflation, if you, if you feel rents are going to grow like that, you know, it's very easy to make deals look better by underwriting 5% rent growth compounded over five years, like that's significant. And if a deal has to hit that to make pencil, like it's probably not the best deal. Uh, exit cap is also something that I look at very, very significantly. I mean, that manipulates returns a lot. You know, it's, it's challenging right now because cap rates are so low. I was brought up that the exit cap should be, and I don't do this now because it's impossible to make deals pencils, but exit cap should, guys that I trust in the business always say I never... I would never buy a deal where it doesn't underwrite with an exit cap below uh, six or above. And that's impossible now because you're buying, you know, low to mid four caps for the most part in in these Western markets. But uh, exit cap is big because cap rates are not all based, but but significantly based on interest rates and interest rates. Nobody really knows what they're going to be in five, seven, 10 years. And so giving yourself some wiggle room is important. You know, buying a four and a quarter cap and modeling out an exit of a 4.5 is pretty unrealistic. It could happen for sure. But you got to look at deals apples to apples. And you know, for me, I like to see someone add at a minimum five basis points a year to, to going in cap to their exit cap and, and typically 10 basis points a year. Okay. So that that's something I look at also. It, it just, you know, models can be manipulated to make deals look better with certain metrics. And so just understanding if you're looking at two different deals, how someone got to their returns can be very different. Um, and understanding where you think is realistic or a bit aggressive, et cetera, um, is important. And that's the challenge, I think, for people like me as passive investors is to, you can feel good about the sponsor in the market, like I said, but to figure out the deal, it's helpful to have a couple of those metrics, like you just said, of things that you can look for that would um, you know, maybe knock that deal out. So it's not like you're looking for a reason not to invest, but at least you know, okay, I'm not investing in this deal because they don't have enough reserves or you know, they're really pushing rents far faster than is realistic. So I think those are really helpful for people to analyze the deals. Yeah, totally. And it's all relative. Like if if the deal if the returns are really, really appealing and they're not adding as much reserves, you know, if you added it in, maybe the, the returns will still be pretty appealing. You know, but if it's a tight deal and you see not much in reserves and rent growth is five percent a year compounded, it's like, well, that deal probably is not gonna do that well because these are a little bit unrealistic. Uh, assumptions. But if the deal looks really, really good and they have slightly unreal, you just have to like understand the amount 
that that affects the deal and then figure out like where the deal really pencils out for you just using all those tools. Right. And and you also, it gives you an opportunity to ask the sponsor about it, right? And they may have good reasons why they did this rent growth or, or why they they made their assumption. So I think for me, it's always important that you have all these red flags, but then if, especially if it's a sponsor you already know and you like them, then you give them a chance to defend their assumptions, right? Absolutely. And everyone has reasons. I mean, I've done more than inflation on rent growth before and and the reason being is that you know, there's, there's many reasons you could have um, and all of them are justifiable. Just understanding that they're not just doing it to make the deal pencil better and have an actual reason. This is Jeremy Roll and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So what are some of the uh, biggest mistakes you've seen passive investors make? It's interesting. I, I And I kind of did this in the beginning too, um, but we get investors all the time that without a phone call, without any anything, are like, yeah, here's a hundred grand. And I just like, that's like shocking to me, even though I kind of did it too. So I, I understand it. I would always say at least you got to speak to the sponsor, you know, about not just the deal, but about their company, about what they want, what what they're trying to do. Is this a hobby? Is this a like a full-time job? You know, I see a lot of, you know, on social media or whatever, a lot of guys that are sponsors that work in tech or work in something else. And they're doing this on the side, understanding like how they're going to do the deal because the Real estate takes time. Like it's it's when you're an, there's a reason why there's passive and active investors. Like the more the active investor oversees the property, the better it's going to do, um, and the more checks and balances there is. So just understanding what their plan is, etc., is essential. You know, more so. I, I think you said this earlier, and I totally agree. The sponsor and location is more important than the actual deal. I think you can have the worst the worst deal. In a location that's growing, you'll win. You could have the best deal in a, in a location that's losing population. You're, you're going to lose. 
Um, and in turn, you can have a great deal with a sponsor that doesn't really know what he's doing. And he can botch some things that make it less good. And you can have an okay deal with a sponsor that really, really knows what they're doing. And they can make it significantly more successful. So um, for me, it's location and sponsor rather than deals. You know, those points that I was making are important, obviously, about rent growth, etc. But truthfully, understanding why they're investing in this location, their experience, etc. Is, is, is paramount. So I know Gelt is, is a experienced syndicator that's been around a long time. But if you're a passive investor, how much experience is necessary? Like, do you have to go all the way back before 2008, you know, to, to get cycles? I mean, how, how far back do you have to go and or how many deals or how would you look at that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I've gotten so we we started and I, I didn't obviously you guys heard my background. I didn't start from the beginning. They started right at the height of the recession. So after 2008, they didn't really live through necessarily the pain points of the recession. And, you know, for a while, we would get a lot of feedback like, hey, you guys have done great this cycle, but this cycle has seen massive growth, etc. You haven't experienced anything. Uh, but we've been around 12 years. So like 12 years is a long time. We've seen a lot of things. Yeah, we haven't seen the great recession. Or, you know, we, we watch from the sidelines, but we've been around a long time. For me, I think the sponsorship group doesn't necessarily have to be like, Gelt's been around 12 years. That That's great. But, you know, we also have the head of the company is in his 70s and he's been in the business for 30 years. And so that's kind of how I would, I don't want to say fight that that reasoning, but you know, I think group experience is less important than individual experience. You know, making having seen deals, seen different scenarios, different locations, etc., is important. But you know, when you're a new sponsor, someone's got to trust you, and so you probably have to give away some to get some. Uh, meaning, give away some of your back end profits to get people to want to do a deal with somebody new. So it's all a give and take. And, and as a passive investor, like if you're going to get a better deal with someone because they're new. And you believe in them and you think they know what they're doing, even though they don't have as much experience as a gelt, it could be worthwhile. You know, for me as an investor, it's all risk reward. So is the reward worth the risk? Uh, and if you're going to get potentially better, better, more money taking a risk with someone new, it could potentially be worthwhile. So as far as the strategy of when to exit a deal, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, are you looking to refinance as quickly as possible and get the capital back or you buy and hold? What's Gelt's philosophy on the exit? We have two different strategies, actually, and which both strategies have different strategies. But our two main strategies are, are as follows. So we have obviously the deep value add strategy where we think that we can add significant value and significant revenue increases and, 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 and NOI growth, whether it be renovations, just raising rents to market, adding in utility bill back. There's a lot of different ways to do that. And so in that instance, we typically structure deals differently where we want to have a capital event within the first two to three years. And then in turn, there's a different strategy of capital events. There's a refi and hold, and then there's a sell and, and go away. Typically, we don't plan on selling deals within two to three years. We plan on refining and holding them with the option to understand that if you know, three years down the road, we think there's a significant gain, we'll, we'll sell the deal. We're never beholden to like a certain time frame. So that's strategy number one, deep value add. Then we have strategy number two, which is more of a core plus strategy in that it's deals that there's not as much value to be had, but there are newer deals, nicer deals in locations we think are going to grow over the next three, five, seven, ten 10 years. And it's a longer strategy, uh, longer hold period, more cash flow centric. Uh, we just bought a deal 
in Denver. We closed like a month ago. Built in 2002, really good location, no value add. The seller that we bought it from had renovated every single unit. But we believe really wholeheartedly in the Denver market. Uh, we think rents are going to grow faster than inflation over the next five, seven, ten years. And so we think this will be a deal we'll hold for a while. We think it's going to be, you know, I've talked about reserves and, and maintenance and stuff. We think it's going to be relatively low maintenance because it's 18 years old um, compared to a 70s, 80s build deal. So that'll be a longer term hold. Obviously, if rents grow faster than we want, than we think, not we want, of course we want that. <laughs> then we think uh, we also want to have a capital event, putting on a supplemental loan, pull out some money. Uh, we've done that many times, um, but that's never budgeted for because it's, I don't want to call it luck because, you know, we're buying in areas we think this that, that have a, a higher probability for this to happen, but uh, it's not certain and we're not adding any value to where we know what we can do. And so that strategy is more safe. Uh, returns are probably lower, um, but it's a, you know, I, I think if you're building a portfolio, you ask for, you, you know, you mentioned market diversity. I think asset quality diversity, diversity is paramount also because, you know, older deals might have more value to be had. But there's more risk, man. They, they break down. Things can happen. Piping, plumbing, boilers. There's just a lot that can happen that you don't get with these newer deals. And so back to the uh, the reserves that we talked about before. So in those two strategies that you mentioned, then you would be okay with lower reserves and lower lower costs per unit on, say, the Denver property than you would on a 1970s property that you got to put a bunch of work into. Yes and no. So yes, because it's newer and there's a lot less that's going to go down. But you know, when you have a seven to 10 year hold and that's the plan and that's what's going to happen, things happen in seven to 10 years, even in the newest, nicest building. You know, typically you're going to have to replace asphalt because that has a five to seven year lifespan. You're going to have to paint most likely, you know, paint, you usually have to paint every 10 years. You're going to need money to do different things. The other strategy, you know, if you held it long term, you would need way more money. But you are dumping a lot of money in originally that has been budgeted for and raised for. So the idea is that, you know, appliances aren't going to be broken down because you're replacing all the appliances by renovating units. So plus you have a shorter window. So yes, if you're holding it long term, you definitely need more, need more money on the older value add deals. But typically you budget more up front for that and you have more. So we raise a lot of capital up front um, for those types of deals. Whereas the other deal, I'm not raising much capital up front, lowers the equity amount. But I'm taking, I'm planning on taking more out of cash flow to fund anything that happens. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think, you know, with all of these, you really just have to dig into the details to understand what the metrics are and what you need to look at. So that's, that's really helpful. Okay. So the last question I generally ask is what is a great podcast that you listen to? I saw this question and, and I actually, I have two real estate related. And he's a friend, and so I'm just going to give him a, a plug. Uh, my guy Hunter Thompson, I, I actually like his podcast a lot. He he does a very nice job interviewing, you know, economists, sponsors, different people. I, I enjoy his podcast. Yeah, and this is a relatively shameless plug as well. But I have a um, interest in a podcast. I don't know if with left field investors. I feel like you guys are baseball centric a little bit. I have an interest in a uh, media brand called John Boy Media. It's all baseball. They do an amazing job. They have the top four ba uh, baseball podcasts in the United States of America, and we're they're, we're growing fast. I, I don't work on it, but I I am part of it um, as an investor and kind of a just uh, I help out. Yeah, and uh, great guys, really fun. So if you're this is obviously aside from real estate, but if you're a uh, a baseball fan, which I, I assume you are at least, Jim, based on your podcast name uh, or your uh, 
your company name. Uh, yeah. These guys are great, great insights, great guests. We just partnered with a bunch of great baseball players that you would know. Uh, and it, it's a fun, it's a fun thing. So that's kind of a shameless little like personal plug, but as for, and separate from this, but uh, those are the two that I, I listen to most often. No, that, that's great. I always like to get, you know, what one real estate or business related one, and then one, just something else, because I listen to a ton of podcasts, but you know, I, I have to have something to entertain myself. You know, I kind of alternate between business and then something yeah. to, to exactly. entertain myself. So that, that that's fantastic. Well, listen, I really appreciate you being on with us today. So if uh, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can email me, josh at geltinc.com, J-O-S-H at G-E-L-T-I-N-C.com. Go to our website, geltinc.com. Check us out. Happy to talk. Look, I uh, my two, uh, what appealed me to, to you and your company is my two biggest passions are real estate and baseball. So baseball was a huge part of my life. And now real estate's the biggest part of my life other than my family. So I love talking real estate. I'm very passionate about it. I learned a lot, you know, in the past five years of being a sponsor, learned a lot that I enjoy talking about because it's a fun, it's a, you know, Jim, it's a really, really fun business. A lot of great people that you meet over the years. And there's a lot of money to be made and not just for yourself, for, for everyone around you. So it's uh happy to, to, to chat or answer any questions that people have. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I love talking about real estate and when someone pushes my button, I'll, I'll go for, for hours. So that's part of the reason I started the podcast, just to uh, talk to people and, and keep the dialogue going. So we really appreciate you being on today and I'll put your uh, contact information in the show notes and uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. That was a great conversation with Josh. It was interesting he got started by partnering with a mentor, which led him into passive investing. And I think that's a great way to get into this, to find someone you trust that can show you the way a little bit. When he left baseball, he looked around for different industries and different jobs and didn't find what he was looking for. But he kept at it until he found something that he was passionate about. And I think that shows in the conversation we had and how excited he is about the properties and the business that, he, that he's in. Josh talked about location and how essential it is to the investment and the need to understand the story of the market and how critical that is. You're not just looking at wage growth, population growth, standard metrics. You are looking at those. You also need to look into the underlying factors that make a market a good place to invest. And you can see that with Gelt in that they're not in all of the typical markets. They're in Denver and Salt Lake and even Portland. So they're in unique markets where they, they need that competitive advantage of looking just past the job growth or wage growth and looking into other factors. Rent control in Oregon, that was another thing that was impressive for me. Just like the conversation I had last week with Jeff Cook, who's investing in mobile homes in New York, there's rent control in Oregon as well. But Gelt and Josh, they understand the Oregon market and they understand the rent control in place. And it's probably actually a benefit because it scares away other competitors that just hear rent control and think, okay, I'm done with Oregon, I can't be successful in that type of market. And that's not true. If you figure out how to work within the rent control or the regulations that are there, it gives you a huge advantage. And I'm in a Portland deal with them and I'm glad to be there. Josh also talked about the two most important factors for passive investors when deciding how to invest, and that's the sponsor and the location. And that really hit me with left field investors because we always say the first thing and the most important thing the most critical is the sponsor, and Josh agreed. And then second is the market. So I like that we're aligned in those in those things. It was interesting, he, has, he was really into understanding the underlying expense assumptions 
which I think is becoming increasingly important under these competitive market conditions that we have now. In the past, you could probably underestimate your expenses, but the rent growth and the market growth and all that would save you. But now, the way the market is so competitive, things are so highly priced, cap rates, all of that, that the expenses and understanding what the sponsor is doing with expenses and making sure that they are being conservative and aren't hiding anything, I think is critical. I'm thankful to have had this conversation with Josh. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to growing my relationship with Josh and with Gelt in the future and investing in, in future deals with them. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.